We continue this morning with our study of eschatology. Last week we looked at hermeneutics and the nation of Israel and how that is important to the study of eschatology. While I intended to finish this week, I know I promise that every week, <laughs> um, my discussions with some of you, um, in my discussions with some of you, I realized that eschatology is not one of those well-frequented uh, subjects. Um, a lot of people avoid the book of Revelation because it's so scary and it's, um, according to some of you, not understandable. Um, I, I want to be sure that I cover the aspects of eschatology as best as I can and I want to give you opportunity to deal with the various things that we say that we are distinct in. And uh, the first subject that we will look, in, look at under the canopy of eschatology is the subject of the rapture. So this Sunday will be the rapture. Next Sunday we will look at the tribulation and the millennium. Now I've covered the millennium, so I will be very brief on the millennium. Uh, but we'll go tribulation and then walk into millennium and then eternal state. Uh, then that should be it. Um, I, I'm going to take another week from the Bible Hour. I know we are supposed to do stewardship and productivity, uh, but there are some subjects that I do want to cover and just to give, uh, like Shantan said, full transparency to give you opportunity to engage. Because Wednesday nights we do engage on the subject again, for those of you who do come. Uh, but I want to give you opportunity next Sunday just to ask those questions. Now, most Christians believe that Jesus will return. The only problem is we differ as to when he will return. However, even in that, even in saying that we believe that Jesus is coming back, we don't always mean the same thing when we say that we believe that he's coming back. Is the return for the church or for both church and Israel? Is the return physical, meaning coming to earth to remain, or is he coming just to get the church? There are a lot of questions with regards to the coming back or the return of Jesus Christ. For now, I want you to know that the coming of Christ, also known as the second advent, is not the rapture. So hold that in your mind, and I will get back to that later on. So it's not the same event. So when we say that we believe in the second coming of Jesus, it is not the same as to say that we believe in the rapture. Because the one relates to the church and the other relates to Jesus' return to earth. So hold on to that. To help you build a framework for the eschaton, eschaton is um, another way of saying end times, I'm going to give you the orders eschaton. I think you understand that, right? The order of end times. Here we go. The first thing that is going to take place that will initiate the end times is, number one, the rapture. Then number two, the tribulation period. Number three, the second coming of Christ. There are subcategories, which I will cover later. And number four, the millennium. Number five, the new heaven and the new earth. There you go. That's how things will unfold. Very easy, right? Well, let me give you a quick window into how sure we are that it will unfold that way. Because the Bible does tell us that it will unfold that way. We do not make this up. We are not thumb-sucking. And we are not theological heretics. The framework is given to us in the book of Revelation. Turn to Revelation chapter 1. What I'm going to do different this Sunday... I'm not going to deal with the most famous passage on the rapture, which is 1 Thessalonians 4.17. I'm not going to deal with that. I'll cover it very briefly because most people know that, even though some discount that. I'm going to deal with the other passages that actually deal with the rapture. Yes, there are other passages that deal with the rapture. But before I get there, I want to give you a theological framework, not only to approach the book of Revelation, but to understand the eschaton. Look at verse 19. Of Revelation. Write therefore the things that you have seen, the things that are, and those that are to take place after this. Pause there. 
There's a number of things in that verse that you have to take note of. Write the things that you have seen. I would circle that word seen. Because that word relates to chapter 1. Then take note of what it says in the second part of the verse. Those things, so write those things which are, circle are, because that is chapter 2 and 3. And then you see right at the end it says, those things that are to take place. That to take place is future. Chapter 4 through to chapter 22. That is the internal structure of the book of Revelation. Now let me prove it to you. Chapter 1, the things that you have seen. Look at verse 2. Chapter 1, verse 2. I'm going to read from verse 1 just to give the context. The revelation of Jesus Christ which God gave him to show, God gave Jesus to show his servant, which supposedly is John, the things that must soon take place. So, eschatology, looking at what will be future. He made known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he what? Saw. Remember? Write on the things that you see. Look down at verse 9. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation, this is not the great tribulation, but a time of trial and, and a hardship that they're going through, and the kingdom, this is not the kingdom that is to come, but being participants of the kingdom, and the patient endurance which is still happening, that are, that are in Jesus, was on... Uh, John was on the island uh, called Patmos. Uh, I'm going to make a historical point here. So John was sent to the Isle of Patmos during the 80s under the reign of Domitian. For those of you who believe that the book of Revelation takes place prior to AD 70, impossible. Domitian reigned from, I think it was 83 through to 94. Just historically, it's impossible. So let's move on. On account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, Write what you what? See in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum, to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. Verse 12, then I turned to see the voice that was speaking again over and over. Verse 17, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Chapter 1 is the first part of verse 19. Write the things that you have seen. I'm showing you a vision. What is the vision that he sees? Well, he tells us. Verse 13, this is what he sees. Verse 12, I turned to see. What is he seeing? In the midst of the lamb stands one like the Son of Man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. Who's that? Jesus. Okay, so what are the lamb stands? Lamb stands are the seven churches. In fact, he tells us that. So John sees a vision of Christ in the midst of the what? Churches, tell them what you see. In the church age, where is Christ? In the midst of his churches. Chapter 2. Write the things that, which, oh sorry, the things that are. Chapter 2. Notice the word are in these sections. I'm only going to show you a few. So he writes to the church in Ephesus. Look at verse 3. I know that you are are enduring patiently. In verse 9, I know your tribulation, your poverty, and, uh, but you are rich, and slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are of the synagogue of Satan. Very simple. John gives us the outline in verse 19 and then he breaks down the book according to that outline. The things that are, are the state of the churches during the church period. Now these were seven literal churches that existed in Asia Minor. But it is not only true of those seven churches, this is true of all the churches in the church age. Now the things that will be, chapter 4, 
After this, very interestingly, after what? Chapter 2 and 3. I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. Look at the future tenses. Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. That is future. From chapter 4 right through to 22 are all future events. That is the outline of the book of Revelation. It's very simple. The things that you have seen is chapter 1. The things that are are the, the age of the church or the period of the church, the seven churches and everything that follows after that until chapter 4 takes place. After that period. So everything from this point is future. So uh, it's interesting, my, my boy, uh, one of my boys is reading the book of Revelation. I didn't ask him to, he just he wanted to read it. And in discussions with him, I noticed how simply he understands it in its literal sense. We complicate it through theology. If you understand it as Jesus is giving this vision, it is very simple. Are there things that is difficult in the book of uh, Revelation? Sure, they are. But as a whole, it is very easy to understand now things that are uh, sorry the things that he has seen chapter one church age chapter two and three future but take note there is an outline chapter four and five the church is in heaven chapter six through 18 there is a great tribulation that is poured out upon the earth chapter 19 you have the second coming of christ Chapter 20, you have a millennium period. Chapter 21 to 22, you have the new heaven and the new earth. That is the outline that I just gave you, right? That is exactly how the, uh, the book of Revelation unfolds. We're not adding anything into it. We're not taking, taking anything away from it. I'm going to give it to you again. Church in heaven, chapter 4 and 5. Tribulation, chapter 6 through 18. Second coming, chapter 19. Millennium, chapter 20. New heaven and new earth, chapter 21. To 22. That is how things will unfold. What you did not see and which I did not mention is what? The rapture. And for that reason, people say it doesn't exist. Well, there you go, because it's not in the book of Revelation. Okay, granted, it is not mentioned in the book of Revelation, but theology doesn't work that way. Just because it's not mentioned in a specific book that deals with a specific thing doesn't mean that it doesn't appear elsewhere. For instance, the church is not mentioned in the Old Testament. Yes, it is not mentioned in the Old Testament. That doesn't mean that the church won't ever exist, right? Because we know that it does exist from other passages. Just because blessings, I should say rewards, are not mentioned in the book of Revelation doesn't mean it doesn't exist. So there are things which are not mentioned in the book of Revelation because the purpose is to show how things will unfold very quickly. But there is one event that starts all of that. What is it? The rapture. Without the rapture, you do not have chapter 4 or 5. Okay. Having made that case then. I know that we are a wide audience. Some of you know the subject through and through. I know at least one person that, that's very settled on, on the rapture. And some of you, maybe this is the first time you've heard the word rapture. And there are those of you who are in between, in betwixt. You're not sure what to believe on this situation. Is it a biblical doctrine? Should we believe it? Does it change anything? Yes, to all of it. It changes a lot. So, the rest of my sermon is going to be on what the rapture is. The rapture is the next event that we are waiting for. It is this event that changes everything with regards to our resurrection, with regards to the coming of Christ. Everything hinges upon the fact that we are raptured. Because if it doesn't take place, nothing else makes sense. However, some say, well, the word is not in the Bible. Ever heard that argument? Well, you don't find rapture in the Bible, and so therefore, rapture, since it's not found in Scripture, is not true. Well, do you know that Trinity is not in the Bible either? So then, is it not true? Well, the same argument you use for rapture, it's probably one of the greatest doctrines in the Scripture, is true of that as well. Does the word appear? Yes, it does. 
we are looking at an English translation, regardless of the Bible that you have. It's a translation. That is not inspired text. The English translation can only give you the sense of the meaning of the word. The word rapture comes from the Latin word rapio, that is the, um, the noun form, or raptura. You can hear it, the similarity, right? Raptura, which is the verb form, and then rapio, which is the, the, the uh, having been taken away, or rapture, which is the snatching away. Both of these translate the Greek term, and I'm going to give you the Greek uh, um, word, harpazo. You don't need to know that word, you don't have to write it on your chest, but that word is very specific in meaning. And it means this, to snatch, to seize, to take suddenly. It's always used consistently in the same way. It can denote a sudden rescue from danger. The emphasis is on the suddenness of the uh, uh, moment. So the basic idea is suddenly being removed or snatched away from something that is dangerous. Sometimes towards something that is better. So rapture is the English translation of the Latin word which is translated from the, he the Greek word. Harpazo. So when you go from uh, any language, mother language, to a daughter language, there's a change in word. It's not the same word, but the meaning, the sense, has to be the same. So, furthermore, Scripture gives us at least five snatching aways. Do you know that? There are five snatching aways. I'm not going to call them rapture. My uh, theology professor called them five raptures in the Bible. Yeah, no, I think there's one rapture, but let's call it five snatching aways. Enoch. Remember that guy? Went for a walk one day and then boom! He walked right into heaven. And the Bible says, and Enoch was no more. He was snatched away. What about Elijah? Elijah's hanging out with Elijah, having a ball of a time. Suddenly there was a, a chariot, chariots of fire coming down and then boom, snatched him away very quickly. What about Jesus? And he ascended into heaven. What about Paul? In fact, of Paul, this exact same word is used in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 2 through to 4. I know a man who was caught up into the third heaven. Caught away, snatched away. When this word is used outside the supernatural sense, it means to be taken by force. For instance, listen to John chapter 10, verse 28. I give them, this is uh, the, the, the sheep of Jesus Christ, eternal life. They will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. You get the picture, right? Nobody can come and quickly grab them from my possession because they eternally belong to me. Matthew 13, when the seed is sown along the path, the devil comes and he what? snatches it away. Doesn't take root because he comes and he just snatches it away. We have in the English, I should say, Capetonian um, language something that mimics it. Ever seen a smash and grab? <laughs> it's very quick, right? So whenever you see smash and grab, think rapture. Very quick. This is not a slow motion event. This is something that takes place instantaneously. One more proof. Acts chapter 839. You don't have to turn to it. Just listen. And when they came out of the water, remember the eunuch that read the book of Isaiah and came to the section and asked, who does this speak about? And the Lord sent him Philip. But just as the Lord sent him Philip, notice what it says. The Spirit of the Lord snatched Philip away. Carrying him away and noticed, and the eunuch saw him no more. Mm, sounds very familiar. Very instantaneous, snatching away, dragging away. Interestingly, in all of the senses, the people who are dragged away, snatched away, pulled away, don't have any control of the snatching. Smash and grab. You don't control that situation. It's a quick, fast ac action. All the lexical senses have the same meaning. It's always a quick um, snap 
snatching away. Why then does it change in 1 Thessalonians? Look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 17. So with all that in mind, look at verse 17. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be what? Harpazo. Snatched up, snatched away, dragged away together with them, those who have died, in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Why does it change when it comes to a, a, an, an event that we cannot fully explain? What does this mean? Well, it means what it says. There's going to be a time when we will be snatched away by the Lord. The sense is the same. We will be caught up, caught away, snatched away, dragged away. Some of you will be going feet first. Because your sewing machine is more important than the rapture. Some of you are going feet first because your game console, you don't want to leave it behind. Or DSTV, I don't know. Netflix. But the sense is the same. They all work. doesn't matter which word you use. So if you use rapture, if you use caught away, snatched away, dragged away, all of them have the same meaning. It's something that takes place to the saint that he has no control over. It happens to them. So what Paul is saying is that we all will be snatched away together. It gives a very vivid picture of what will happen in the rapture. That is what the rapture is by definition. It's a snatching away of the saints. Now, you may not be convinced yet. That is enough for me. Man, I read scripture very literally, and when it says that we will be dragged away, that's in fact the meaning of the word. Maybe because some of us want to hold on to this world, and Jesus is going to come and say, what are you doing? Let go! Come up here! So, since the meaning remains the same. There is no reason why we have to reject the idea of the snatching away of the saints. If you have a literal hermeneutic and you maintain that hermeneutic, you cannot walk away by saying, well, the rapture doesn't exist. Now, why is there such a problem with this idea of the rapture? I mentioned this last week. If we do not agree on the term Israel and church, then the rapture falls away. You see, the, the, the nation of Israel, if we become spiritual Israel, we walk right into the tribulation period and then into the millennium. There is no rapture in that. There is no catching away. So if the church is distinct from Israel, then the church by itself and not Israel can be raptured then. What I mean is this, if the church is Israel, there is no need for a rapture. Because Israel goes through the tribulation period, not the church. Not only is our view of the church important, but our view of millennium is important. There are those, the Armels, who say that this is the millennium period. It's an indeterminate amount of time that we just keep on living. Things get better. There is no millennium. If there is no millennium... There is no rapture. The post-millennials say, well, things get better through preaching. I don't know about that. I mean, we've been preaching for 2,000 years and it's not been getting any better. But let's say the evangelization of the world takes place and changing culture, everything changes and we become a better society as a whole. And then only Jesus returns post tribulation. Think about that. If Jesus only returns post-tribulation and we just walk right into the tribulation and right into the millennium, into the kingdom, there is no rapture. That's a denial of the clear meaning of scripture. However, if you hold to a literal grammatical hermeneutic consistently, there is no way you can end up armor or postmill. Because the rapture is part of what scripture gives to us in its clear meaning. I mentioned the eighty seventy. Those who hold to the eighty seventy date, meaning that Revelation is all fulfilled by eighty seventy, are the preterist group. Now there are two groups within that canopy, and we'll get to that later. But 
they say that everything has already been fulfilled. Well, if that's the case, tell me where is the resurrected body? Hmm. This is why I took some time last week and we looked at hermeneutics and the church-Israel distinction. If you don't get that, you will not get the importance of the rapture. Let me say it this way. If you mess up the understanding of who Israel is, you mess up the rapture. If you mess up your understanding of what the millennium is, you mess up the end times. Nothing in eschatology makes sense if we do not fix the hermeneutical problem of church and Israel. So why is the rapture important? Number one, this is not point one, this is just a sub-point. Because it is exclusively related to the church. The rapture is for you who are a child of God. Yes, the rapture does not relate to Israel. It only relates to the church. So let me give you three biblical proofs of the nature of the rapture and the importance of the event from other passages other than 1 Thessalonians. Number one, the rapture is also called the blessed hope. It is the blessed hope. Now, theologically that makes sense, but I'm going to prove that the blessed hope is more than just the rapture. There's something that happens at that point. Look at chapter 2 of Titus and verse 11. There's a word that I want you to take note of. Highlight it, circle it, underline it. It's the word appearing. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, um, uh, to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in the present age. Verse 13. Waiting for the blessed hope. The appearing, circle that, of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So, the rapture is connected to the blessed hope. I don't personally think that the rapture is the blessed hope, but it is connected to the blessed hope. The verbal form of this word appear appears twice, see what I did there? Appears twice in the section. Verse 11, the appearing, which is the verbal form, and then the nominal form, which is in verse 13. The idea of appearance is in view over there. There's a slight nuance. So what are we waiting for then? The blessed hope. Keep that in mind. Go to 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 4. We are waiting for the blessed hope. Remember that word that I said you need to circle. Look for it here. Verse 4, and when the chief shepherd, what? Appears, circle that. You will receive the unfading crown of glory. So, the appearing now, there's connected to it a reward, a crown of glory. So we are not only looking forward to a blessed hope, connected to the blessed hope is a reward. Look at 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 8. Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. What day? Not only to me, but also to those who have loved his what? appearing so connected to the appearing there's a crown of righteousness that the lord will give to us on that what day very specific event look at colossians 
chapter 1, verse 5. I'm going to read from verse 3. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope that is laid up for you in heaven. I'm going to pause just there for now. The hope that is laid up for you in heaven. So what is this hope that the Bible speaks about? Notice that it does not say that the hope is heaven. But the hope is in heaven. That is two different things. So, connected to the appearing then, there is this hope, which is called the blessed hope, or the hope that is laid up for you in heaven. There is the the crown of righteousness, there is unfading glory or crown that is connected uh, to it. All of that is connected to the one event known as the blessed hope of His appearing. In other words, this blessed hope has not yet taken place. It is something external to us. It is something that is connected to the appearance of Christ. In 1 Peter 1 verse 3, it says that it is reserved in heaven and it is living. It's a living hope. How can hope be alive? Now you may be thinking internal hope in that we hope that is coming back. No, that is not what it means. It is something that exists Externally to us, it is something that will appear for us. What is this hope? Look at Hebrews chapter 6. I think this may help. Hebrews 6 verse 18. Translations may differ here and I will explain what the sense of the text means. Dealing with the fact that God can never go back on His promise. That is important. When He promises, He will keep it. Verse 17. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of His purpose, He guaranteed it with an oath. God swore to keep His promise to Israel by Himself. So that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to, what is this? Hold fast to the, what? Hope that is set before us. We have this sure and steadfast anchor to, oh, sorry, of the soul, a hope that enters into the holy place behind the curtain. Pause. Think about that. Throughout this section of hope that I've mentioned and appearing, hope is almost indicated to be a person. And here, the author of Hebrews says that hope enters through the curtain. How is that possible? Well, he tells us where Jesus has gone a forerunner on our behalf. Jesus is the hope. That's the point. We are waiting for the appearing and the blessed hope. The hope is not what we have. The hope is a Him. Who has gone beyond the veil. Look at the text again. We have the sure and steadfast anchor to the soul. A hope that enters into the holy place behind the curtain. Jesus has gone as a forerunner. I've removed the word where because it confuses the sense of the text. Having become a high priest forever. Now go back to Titus. Let me show with all that in mind that the hope is the appearing of Jesus. 
verse 13. Waiting for the blessed hope. Put an equal to sign there. The appearing of the glory of our great God. Put an equal to sign there. Savior, Jesus Christ. So, let's put it together. Waiting for the blessed hope, which is the appearing of the glory of our God, which is our Savior, Jesus Christ. Does that make sense? The appearing is not the second coming. The appearing is the hope that Paul says we have. It's the future event of the appearance of Jesus Christ for his saints. So the question is not what is this blessed hope, but who is this blessed hope? In other words, what is the church waiting for now? Not the tribulation. Not the millennium, not the eternal state, but the appearing. Let me put it this way. We are waiting for the blessed hope. Let me circle back. I hate that language, but let me use it. Circle back to that word appearing. This is important. This is something that is separate to the second coming, significantly different to the second coming. We know that we are expecting the appearing because that's constantly what it says. The appearing, the appearing, the appearing. The appearing is specifically related to Jesus coming for the saints. Now, in the rapture, the location of Jesus is not given. Meaning, he's not coming to a specific place on earth. In the second coming, the location is specifically given. How do we know? Zechariah chapter 14. Behold, a day is coming, verse 1, for Yahweh, when the spoil taken from you will be divided in your midst, and I will gather the, what? Nations, notice, not his people, the nations against Jerusalem to battle, and the city shall be taken, and the houses plundered, and the women raped. Horrible day, horrible day. Verse 3, then Yahweh will go out and fight against those nations. As he fought, uh, sorry, as when he fights on a day of battle, On that day, still the same day, on that day, his feet shall stand on the mount of what? That lies before Jerusalem on the east. The Mount of Olives will be split in two, east to west, by a very wide valley. I don't have time to go into that. Tremendous section. What is he saying? When he comes... That day you will know because his foot will touch the Mount of Olives. The Mount of Olives is known as the Mount of Defeat. Whenever the kings of Israel fled, where did they flee to? Past the Mount of Olives or to the Mount of Olives. The last king of Judah fled past the Mount of Olives uh, around uh, Jericho. It, It is called the Mount of Defeat because that is the escape route. In fact, the, the, the king's gate faced the Mount of Olives. So when they fled, they had to go past that route. Where does Jesus come to? The Mount of Defeat, to the Mount of Olives. All the kings failed. None of them were able to withstand the attack against Israel. But this king, he comes in glory and thunder and power and he crushes the enemies of Israel. The Mount of Defeat will be no more. In fact, it says it is split east to west. And if you look east, uh, if you look, um, I think it's north from there, you won't see the mountain anymore. Because it's lying that way, which means Israel, Jerusalem, will no longer have this big mountain that is shadowing it. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? Because we dealt with this last week, that all the valleys will be laid low. 
The rapture, however, does not have an earthly location. Look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. There is no location given in the rapture when he comes for his saints. Verse 19. For this is our hope or joy and crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his parousia, parousia, sorry, at his coming. Different word to appearance. But this word, parousia, literally means presence and appearance. I think it's obvious in English. If, if Shantan appears at your door, you know he's present because he makes it known. The music's blaring, he knocks and screams. So the presence means appearance, and the appearance means it's logical, right? That's what it's saying here. We have a hope and a joy and a crown of boasting when he appears or when he's present physically. Go to chapter 4, verse 17. No location there. Then we who are alive, who are left behind, will be raptured away, snatched away together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord where? In the air. If you're looking for a location, well, it's somewhere in the air. There is no specific location given in the rapture, but there is a specific location given in the second coming. Two different events. The appearance is coupled with directionality. When Jesus comes to the earth in his second coming, the language has always got directionality as in coming down to, not coming to the air. That's different. This word appearance is used not of a location, but of a general area or realm. Jesus will meet his saints in the air. Look at 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 1. Now concerning the coming of our Lord, again, Perusia, so it is his appearance and his presence will be made known to us. And our being gathered Together to him. Pause there. I want you to to hold that phrase in mind. Being gathered together to him. Because that will become important in a moment's time. Almost like a shepherd rounding up his sheep. He will gather them together. That is the appearance. In other words, the rapture relates specifically to Jesus coming and gathering his saints like a shepherd would his sheep to be with him. He's not coming down to earth, but coming to get them. Because that is what it means, the gathering of the saints. Now some of you who know Matthew 24 would say, well, hang on, hang on, hang on. Aren't the elect then, quote-unquote, Israel also then gathered? Yes, they are. But who gathers them? Angels. Who gathers us here? Jesus. Two different events. So, I think the rapture on that point is pretty clear. But turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13. Remember I said that the rapture specifically relates to the saints. That is the church saints. Notice verse 13. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who have fallen asleep. Key to understand this entire section is what is meant by those who have fallen asleep. That you may not grieve as others do who have no what? Hope. Well, by now you should know that the hope is him who returns. He who returns. 
For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. There we have this phrase again. So who are those who have fallen asleep? Well, I think it's explained in verse 14. Since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, it is those who believe in him. Those who believed in him and those who have died believing in him, they, only they, are those who have fallen asleep. And I know you're starting to think, well, hang on. What about the Old Testament saints? Let's read on. Verse 15. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord. Think about that. This I'm giving to you as a direct revelation from the Lord. In other words, this is new revelation. This is new. It is not given in the Old Testament. You will not find mention of the rapture in the Old Testament ever. Why? Because the church is not mentioned in the Old Testament. What does Paul say in Ephesians chapter 2 and 3? The church is a what? Mystery. Which has been hidden in time past, but now has been made uh, known or has been made manifest or revealed. There's no rapture mentioned in the Old Testament because the church is not mentioned in the Old Testament. Like, duh, right? Yeah, it's, it's obvious. But what is mentioned in the Old Testament, we just read Zechariah chapter 14, the second coming. Because the second coming relates to whom? Israel. The rapture relates to who? The church. We who are alive are left until the coming, the parousia, the appearance and his uh, presence of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, of command, with the voice of an archangel and with the sound of the trumpet of God. Take note of this. These are those who have fallen asleep. The dead in Christ will rise First, that's a very specific group. Old Testament saints are not in Christ. That term is only used of New Testament believers. I know that is hard to hear because we can't, most of us think that the church in Israel are one thing and then uh, since they hoped in Christ and we hope in Christ, um, they looked at Christ from Him not coming and we looking at Christ as having come we are all in Christ? No. Saints from Acts 2 onwards, they alone are in Christ. And they who have died in Christ will rise first. And we who are part of them, who are alive, who are left, are caught up, raptured together with them, those who are died in Christ, in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Amen. The consistent use of those who have fallen asleep with the explanation of those being in Christ means only one thing. This is the church. So then Christ comes for the church. The question then is, what is meant in verse 15? For this we declare to you, um, sorry, in verse 13. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even, uh, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. Now a lot of commentaries, and maybe your notes in your Bible will also say that God is going to bring the spirits of those who have fallen asleep with Jesus and they are coming down. Now, I used to believe that, but the grammar does not actually allow for that. In fact, when does Jesus come with saints? In the second coming, Matthew chapter 24. It's the only time that he comes with people. Revelation chapter 19, he comes with people. The armies of heaven comes with him. But in the rapture, in the appearing he appears alone. And that is significant for a number of reasons. Now, what do we make then of this verse? Well, the word literally means, this word that is translated bring, literally means to lead or lead away, to lead off, to bring along or take along. 
to lead away as in custody. You get the picture, right? Like when a, when a uh, metro cop pulls up next to you and says, listen, you jumped the robot, you need to come with me. Where is he leading you to? To jail, right? That is the idea. It's not bringing with, but leading with. Make sense? So when he comes, he's going to lead them who have died. He's going to lead them away with us. Keep that in mind and listen to the text with that sense in verse 14. For we believe, for since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will lead with him those who have fallen asleep. Lead away with him. What is the point of the rapture? Not the coming, but to take us away. Because he repeats that at the end when he says in verse 17, We are alive, we are left, we will be caught up together with them in the clouds, and we will always be with the Lord. Jesus comes to drag us away, whether you are dead or not. You're going to be dragged away, and that's the sense of this word, lead away. It's a very bad translation to say bring, because that's not in the, the sense of the word. So to lead away from a current position, what is the current position? They're dead. They're in the ground, six foot under. Or burnt. So they have to get a head start because their bodies have to be reconstituted. Whereas those of us who are alive, we just get changed. This is not the second advent. This is the appearing of our Lord and Savior for those who belong to him. The second point I want to highlight is that the rapture is transformational. It is not only part of the blessed hope, but it is transformational. Look at 1 John chapter 3, verse 2. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet, what is that word? Appeared, I would circle that. But we know that when he, there's that word again, appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. Wow. This is the rapture. I want you to take note what takes place at the visible sight of Jesus. What we will be has not yet appeared. The change has not yet taken place. But we know that, uh, but we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him. When He appears, there's something that takes place in our bodies. Let me put it this way. When Jesus comes, the visible sight of Him causes an immediate, instantaneous change to these mortal bodies. You will go from being able to die to being able to never die. You will go from an overweight individual to possibly a very skinny individual. I don't know. I'm just making an assumption there. That's sanctified speculation. And I will argue on Wednesday why I think that the body will be refined to look like Jesus. But anyway, there's going to be a, con a, a catastrophic, catastrophic change to our body. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. It is connected to the resurrection. So the appearance is connected to the change that will take place, which is connected to the resurrection. 1 Corinthians 15, 23, notice what it says. But each one in his own order, speaking about how the resurrection will take place, each one in his own order. Christ, the first fruits. First fruit means the first of a kind. So for the first fruits, then at his coming, his parousia, appearance, and... Uh, um, um, uh, what's the two words? Presence, uh, appearance and presence. Those who belong to Christ. Then the end comes when he delivers the kingdom to God. I'm going to pause right over there. 
There's a physical change that takes place at his appearing. It is known as the resurrection. So you cannot remove the resurrected body from the appearing of Jesus Christ. Because 1 John chapter 3, verse 2 says, When we see him, we shall be like him. That is not a change in essence, meaning um, internally. That's a change in physical um, existence. So the appearance of Christ will be a transformational event for the believer. The rapture is where, take note of this, the rapture is where you will get a new body. Amen to that. Because we are trying very hard to keep these bodies alive. Some of us are on diets, on germs, and eat the healthiest foods alive. To me, if I could eat pizza every day, praise the Lord. But if you take the rapture away, you take away the change of the body as well. The rapture is the event that affects the resurrection of the body. You do not have a resurrection of the body without the rapture for the believer. There is a clear relationship between the body of Christ, the body of Jesus Christ, and the body that we will have. We will resemble His body. Well, he could walk through walls. I'm looking forward to that. He could eat with that body. So this is not like an angel sitting on a cloud playing a harp kind of body. It's a body that can retain food, but it's a body that is different to what we have. The rapture is part and parcel of the resurrection. Now some of you who have a little bit more of a scientific mind say this is physically and scientifically impossible. Yes, amen, it is. Just like your spiritual death to spiritual life is an impossible act and God alone can do it, so the resurrection of the body, only God can effect such a change. In I think it's Romans. No, it's 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 54. Paul's doxological result of understanding the resurrection. He says, Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, grave, where is your victory? In other words, it has no longer a hold of us, a hold on us. What then gives us that change, that victory over death? Well, it tells us in verse 54, when the perishable puts on imperishable, when the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O grave, where is your sting? That is the rapture. When Jesus comes, our bodies get changed. There's a transformation that takes place. My time is up. I'm going to quickly wrap up the last point, which is the most significant point. John chapter 14. The rapture is important because your Savior... My Lord has promised it. Notice what it says in verse 36. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? If you can just rewind your mind back to the context here. Jesus tells them, I'm going to go away. You cannot come yet. And so now they're wondering, hang on. If he's going... I thought he's going to Jerusalem because if he sits on the throne, we want to be there with him. So what on earth is happening? So Peter says, where are you going? Jesus answered him, where I am going, you cannot follow me now. That last phrase, you need to highlight. You cannot come right now. Which means you will be able to follow, just not right now. In fact, that's what he says. But you will follow afterward. So where I'm going, you are not able to come at this immediate time. But eventually you will get there. And Peter said, Lord, why can I not follow you now? 
I will lay down my life for you. Yes, Peter. And I think we are all in that same boat sometimes. Yes, Lord, I will give everything for you. And then he gives you a car. But then it's not the Lord's car. Then he gives you a house. And you have nobody over in that house. Yes, Lord, I will lay down my life for you. Truly, truly, I say to you, Jesus answered him, will you lay down your life for me? Really, Peter? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow until you have denied me three times. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. If you trust that God is a God of faithfulness and that he keeps his promises, well, do the same. Believe in me, because I will keep my word. I said you will not come now. I didn't say you will not come at all. In fact, notice what he says in verse 2. In my father's house are many rooms or mansions is a bad translation. He's not saying that there are many houses. Saints, you're not going to get a house in heaven. Get that out of your mind. That's not what it says. In fact, this is not even the point of what Jesus is saying. Listen to what it says. In my father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you that I um, would... Where was I now? If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to be uh, to myself that where I am, you may be also. There's a number of things in here. Number one, the point is not to give you a room. The word prepare is not as in build or construct. That's a different word. The word is preparing a meal. That's the idea. It's, it's getting things ready for the arrival. That's the point that Jesus is making. We're thinking... Well, when I get to heaven, I'm going to lavish out in this nice little six-bedroom house or maybe seven-bedroom because it's heaven, so the number seven will be everywhere. No, no. Jesus is saying, if I'm telling you that I'm going to prepare a place, what can you expect? That I'm going to take you to that place. That's the point. But notice that he doesn't say that I'm going to take you to be in the house or in the mansion, or in the room, because that is not the point that Jesus is making, but to be with me where I am. Where is he? Before the Father, interceding for us. What is Jesus saying? When I come for you, I'm going to take you to be where? Before the Father. I don't care if I don't get a room. Because that's not the point that Jesus is making. He's saying, I promise that I will come for you, so I will come for you. When you take the rapture away, you take away the promise of Jesus to come for his bride. That is why the rapture is important. Jesus is saying, you can bank on the fact that I will come for my own. Now take this word, receive. It literally means to pick you up and take you along with. Very interesting choice of word. To pick you up and to gather you to take you along with. Remember I said that there was a word that you had to remember? What was that word? Gathering. You see it now? The gathering. That we will be gathered together with him or to him Jesus says that I will come to take you and gather you to myself because that is what I have promised if it were not so he would not make this promise the rapture is not the second coming and I know that that is often confused the rapture is the time when Jesus will change these bodies, when he will appear, appear in the sky, all the language of this appearance, all the language of this appearance is quick and instantaneous. Which tells you something about the moment of a change of our body. Paul says it this way, in a twinkling of an eye, our bodies will be changed. Try to do that. No, that is blinking. 
That is not a twinkling of an eye. A twinkling of an eye relates to the time that it takes for light to enter the eye. That is very fast. That is the rapture. Very quick, instantaneous moment. Much faster than it takes for light to enter the eye. Which means nobody else will see this event. But in the second coming, every eye will see him. Two different events. So the rapture is the hope, the blessed hope that we have in his appearing when he will come for us to change his bodies of ours, to take us, gather us as he sends, together with one another who have died, and so that we will always be with him. So wherever he goes, that is where we will be. Paul says, comfort one another with these words. Why would it be a comfort if Jesus is never going to come? Then it's not a comfort. Believers, we can believe in the rapture because that is what the Bible clearly says will happen. Let me close in a word of prayer. Father, we are thankful to you for the great, blessed hope and the appearing that that is still future for us. Jesus will come for the church. And I know that there are those who are on different theological planes at this moment. Lord, if we lose the hope of the appearing, we lose the resurrection. If we lose the resurrection... We lose the changed body. We lose the changed body. We lose your promise. You said you will come. And we trust that you will come. So come, Lord Jesus, and take us to be with you. We give thanks to you for this hope. Pray that our hearts and our minds would be encouraged, as Paul said, that we should be encouraged, that you are coming for your name's sake, your glory's sake, we pray. Amen.